Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. My name is Tim Barton, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Vine. And I want to start by by getting you to just think about something for a moment. Have you ever had a time in your life where you wanted to belong, but didn't feel like you could. I think that everybody in here would probably answer yes to that if you had enough time to think. And most of you, from your facial expressions, didn't have to think long at all. Right. Today, we're going to come to a place in Genesis chapter 2. We're in this, this series on the image of God. And in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see that, that God did create us with that place um, to belong. He created mankind in that way. Um, and we're going to look at that in a moment. Um, and we're going to do that, but, but first I want to remind you of where we've come. Because in Genesis chapter 1, we see this big picture of creation. Um, as God walks through um, the creation narrative, Moses laying that down for the people of Israel to hear, um, this, this story of creation. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2, and when we come to Genesis chapter 2, he zooms in. And he zooms in specifically on the creation of mankind, right? And so we, what we're going to see today is that in creating mankind, he gave three things um, that we're going to see in our passage today. He gave life, he gave a delightful place um, to dwell in his presence, and he gave directions and consequences, okay? We're going to look at those three things um, that he gave, and I want you to pay special attention because those weren't just for Adam and Eve, Right? So, so we think because sin entered the world, well, that doesn't exist anymore. Actually, those things are with, throughout the narrative of Scripture, and we're going to see that they're good for us today um, after we look at those three things in, in the passage here. So go to verse 4 with me. I'm not going to read the whole Scripture up front. I'll read it as we go. We'll read it all. We're looking at verses 4 through 17 of Genesis chapter 2. Um, but, Genesis, but verse 4 says this. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, what's interesting here, we read that, you know, we're like, okay, well, now this is just some of that poetic language. There's something very important in that verse because that verse shows the switch from the big picture now focusing in. Let me tell you what. In Genesis 1, the name for God is used. Um, the name that is used there is Elohim. Now, Elohim means um, he, that, that he is the highest to be feared. He is the, the powerful, the majestic, the creator God who spoke all things into existence. And so in chapter 1, that, that's how God is referred to with this, this phrase Elohim. You'll notice in verse 4, if you look at it again, he says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That phrase, Lord God, comes from the Hebrew Yahweh Elohim. All right? What does Yahweh mean? Let's talk about that for a minute. In the first service, a little kid blurted out, uh, God! <laughs> Yahweh. What does that mean? Yahweh is the self-existent, self-determining absolute one, and because of that, he is the consistent, the faithful, the covenant-keeping God that the people of Israel were looking to. 
And so you remember Moses wrote this, the, whole, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Moses wrote this to the people of Israel, likely while they're wandering in the desert. Right? And so he's reminding them of who this God is, the Yahweh. And he's telling the people of Israel by combining these two names, which by the way, this combination occurs 20 times in Genesis 2 and 3. By combining these two names, the, the, the magnificent God and the personal covenant faithful God, he's telling the people of Israel that they need to remember that this one they see as the covenant God, the promise-keeping God, the personal God, is also the almighty creator and God over all of history. We need to remember that too. See, we can get an unhealthy balance either way. And we only think of God as that one, the, the big God in the sky. We kind of get affected by Greek mythology and all this stuff. And we think of he's just the big God up there ready to strike us down, do things that, that way. Um, he's the powerful one, but, but he's not personal. Or we think, well, that's not my God. My God's my personal God, and he's just here with me. And, and he, so the point is, he's both. He's not going to strike us down, by the way. But um, he's, he's both. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. So what we're going to see today is as he makes this transition, zooming in on this personal part of God and the personal relationship that this creator God had with the people, he gives three things. The God over all the universe, keep this in mind as we go today, is also a personal and present God. First thing he gives, at creation, he gives life. Look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 now. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." I'm going to pause for just a minute. I'm going to talk in depth about this. But in verses 5 and 6, I just want to highlight something really quickly. I mean, that is that, that these verses indicate that this isn't just a rehashing of what we saw in Genesis 1, and it's not a, a completely new account. Um, it actually falls between Genesis 1, 9, and 10, where there's a separation of the heavens and the earth, and in 1, 26, where God creates man, and in this in-between time, indicating what was going on there. You don't necessarily have to remember all that, um, here's, here's the point, though, is that during that time, what this indicates is that it did not rain upon the earth and mankind was not in existence to cultivate the plants of the ground. What, what he's doing here is emphasizing even the rain, even man cultivating plants, that's all a work of God, ultimately. It's a work of God. And the creator God who put order into place, who put the ordinary things into place, the, the rain and the, the people to work, the creator God can step out of that. He's not bound by the things that he put in order. Now, if you pause on that a minute and think, the original audience who's hearing this, who's been delivered from Egypt through the plagues, and now who's wandered around in the desert, and having manna provided for them, it probably was good for them to be reminded of that, right? Now let's go back to the main point. God gives personal 
attention and deliberate care in creating mankind. It says he made man out of the dust of the ground. Now, who formed the dust? God, right? God created all things out of nothing. We saw the first week of this series by the word of his power. God made the dust, and now he takes the, pretty much the, the, the most nothing thing on earth, the dust, and he takes that and he makes man with it. He makes man out of something as close to nothing dust as, 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 he, as he could. Now, we know that imagery in other parts of Scripture talk about God as the potter and man as the clay, mankind as the clay, right? Examples of that without me going there fully, you see it in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in Lamentations, in Romans, and there are other places, right? Where, where God, where, where the language there is used as God as the potter and, and us, the people, as the clay. There's also places in cultures surrounding Israel at the time where pottery image was used when, and when they were talking about the origins of man. So what makes this different? Why is this personal? It's because the thing that gives life in this passage is the very breath of God. The very breath of the majestic, all-powerful creator God. And when we talk about breath, breath is a pretty special thing, right? When do we talk about breath the most? When a baby, when he or she comes out of his mother's, the mother's womb, and he or she takes its first breath, it's a pretty special thing. We talk about it when we think about someone taking their last breath. It's a somber thing, but a, but a serious thing. Now I want everybody in here, just take a breath. Okay. You would have done that anyway, even if I hadn't told you to. You just wouldn't have realized it. That breath you just took, or 12 breaths ago, or however many you've breathed since then, that breath is from God. And it's hard for us to remember that sometimes. All we have, including the breath of life, is from him. He gave that to those whom he created in his image. And that's why it's so personal. That's why he's such a personal God. That same God who breathed life then dwells with his people. And that's the second thing we see is that at creation, he gives a delightful place in his presence. Look back at verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God created this protected place, this, this sheltered place in an area of Eden. You know what the word Eden means? Delightful. Right, so he, he, he created this garden in this, this area of, this delightful area of Eden. So the garden in the land of Eden as a place for his people to dwell in communion with him. And then verses 9 through 14 gives us details about the garden. I'll read through those now. 
And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now keep in mind, this is written to real people in real time in history. The Bible tells us over and over again that that, um, Genesis to Deuteronomy was written by Moses to the people of Israel. And so this detail that he's given here, he's giving to show them this is a real place that I'm referring to. He's using things that they would have known. And you see, even when he uses the the Tigris and the Euphrates, those two rivers are rivers that he didn't even have to use description for. They were so well known, right? Right? The point is, is that this land of Eden, this garden in the land of Eden was not some made up place. I think sometimes when we read this, we think when we read the creation account, we kind of think once upon a time in a land far, far away. What Moses is doing here is going, no, this is a real place. There's landmarks for it. And And he's calling that out to the people of Israel. What makes it delightful, though? When I was growing up and I thought about what makes it delightful, guess what I thought of first? Good food. Right? Good food. All the trees that were pleasing to the eye, you get, you get the point. And, and yeah, that's delightful. It's delightful that there's no sin there. It's del- you know, all those things. But what makes it delightful? The personal God, the presence of God was there. God was there. It was the place to be in his presence. Now, being in the presence of God is a core theme that runs throughout all the Bible. We see it here in creation, created in the image of God to be in the presence of God. We see it when the people of Israel have his presence as they wander through the the wilderness. Remember what his presence showed up in? It was the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, his presence to lead them. We see it as the people of Israel are reminded for their need for sacrifice to keep them in his presence. And and they did that through the sacrificial system through the temple. Then we see it in the need for the sacrifice of Jesus to make it possible for us to be in his presence again after sin. We see it in regeneration when the spirit of God dwells with us. But we're going to come back to that in just a minute. So at creation then, if I go back, sum all that up again. He gives life. He gives purpose. He gives us a, 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 I'm sorry. He gives us life. He gives us a place to dwell um, in his presence. And third, he gives us directions and consequences. 
Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This could also be translated, work and keep can also be translated, serve and obey. I won't, I won't go into all that right now, but, but either way, he put them there and he gave them instructions. He created them, he put them there, and he gave them instructions. Now, when something is created, we kind of, and, and we, or we buy something and we're supposed to see how it works, how do we do that? We get instructions, right? Well, I, um, yesterday, or not, uh, Friday, I was deciding finally to fix our dryer um, that was making a horrible racket. Um, my wife was very patient because it's been going on for at least nine months. Um, Y'all better be glad I still have clean clothes to wear. She, uh, she's been very nice. Um, finally getting around to fix it, I ordered the parts. They come in a box. And Friday morning, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go in there and make sure everything's there. I open the box, and all the parts are there. But there's no directions to be found. There's no instructions. There's not even a little QR code where I can do that and find the instructions. There's nothing. I looked at those. I was like, you're supposed to put directions in here. That's what we expect. But isn't it interesting that in our lives we tell the creator, I don't really want your instructions. I don't really want what you say are good, is good for me. I think I got it. I'll figure it out on my own. So we are to work it. We are to keep it. Those are the instructions. Then look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what he uses here when he says, um, when we see the knowledge, tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's what, it's what is called um, a merism. And it is this idea of from one extreme to the other, from one end to the other. And he's using that and separating good and evil in that way. And so all things, everything, everything, you'll know everything if you eat of this. That's what Satan tempts them with later, right? It's this tree of good and evil. But I want to I note something here, and it's that God was not seeking to trap Adam and tempt him beyond what he could bear. Like all of us, God desired for Adam to come to him, to be in his presence fully. He wanted his image bearers to obey and to worship him, and because sin had not yet entered the world, they had the ability to do good or evil. He wanted Adam to believe that he is worthy of all his trust. He wants us to believe that he's worthy of all our trust, even when things don't make perfect sense to us. And so he gave clear directions. And he told Adam what was good for him. And so the God over all the universe gave life, gave a place a delightful place for us to dwell with him. He gave directions, consequences, instructions. 
And man had the ability to obey him because sin had not entered the world. And we'll see later in this series in Genesis 3, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what you already know. Sin did enter the world. And as a result, Adam and Eve's relationship with God was broken. As a result of their sin and our sin, our relationship with God was broken. And so the only thing that can provide true and lasting meaning for them and us was lost. This is why we long to be known. It's why we want someone to know us and, and understand us and say, I love you anyway. This is why we long to have a place that makes us comfortable, secure, approved of, a place that makes us feel like we're in control. You know, it's, it's what we, we, we strive for. I, I hear people incorrectly talking about retirement all the time, and it's like this mindset that we think we can create this on earth, right? That we think that if I get everything in order, then I can get done with all my work, and then I can just have this, and it's all just perfect. You're, you're longing for heaven. You're longing for what has been broken, what can only be given in Christ. Students, when you think about you think, you're thinking ahead and you're like, I, I long to have that relationship where I can be married and where I'll just always be accepted and where I don't really have to change anything about who I am and where I can just be me. <laughs> Guess what? That's really not what marriage is like. It's good, but that's not what it's like. I could use many other examples, but I'll spare you right now. It's what we long for. We deeply desire to know the presence and comfort of our God near us, our God with us. And so we try to find that in all sorts of places and all sorts of ways, but it can only be found with God. You see, God did not stop. After sin, he didn't stop. And so... Because he didn't stop, it's good news from here on out, okay? Because he didn't stop, we mentioned that we can see him at work bringing these things about. This, this, he's working again that we might have life, that we might have a place to dwell in his presence, a delightful place, uh, and, then, and that we might have purpose um, in our lives, You see, that's why Jesus came. And his sacrifice made it possible for people to be in his presence again. And so now all those things we saw in creation, we can see among followers of Jesus. Not perfectly, but we can see them among followers of Jesus. Let's look at those um, for just a minute. First, he gives life. Have you ever heard the word ruach? You're like, what was that? It is the Hebrew word that is often translated as the Spirit of God, but, but, and it also means breath and life. You see, because of sin, we were dead, 
But when we come to Jesus in faith to Jesus, the Spirit of God comes to us. The, the breath of God is breathed into us. We call that regeneration. And we have life. It is life given from him. We go from death to life. He gives life. He gives a delightful place in his presence. This blows my mind every time I think about it. But the spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he lives in us. You see, it was a place where we could dwell with God. Now God comes while we're on this earth. God dwells with us, in us. Now that time is coming in the new heavens and the new earth where we will be fully in his presence. We'll see him face to face. But I believe we are closer to him right now as he dwells in us than Adam and Eve were in the garden. We don't always realize it. We don't always realize it because of our remaining sin. But he is in us. He is working in us. He is changing us. And then he gives us instructions for our purpose in this life. What is our purpose then? You put all this together. Our purpose, I'm going to tell you a couple things it's not and say what it is. Our purpose is not to recreate the physical garden on earth. That's not our purpose. And again, we try to do that in some of those things I mentioned a moment ago. God's going to recreate. He's going to do that in the new heavens and the new earth. And so our purpose is also not to recreate a physical place for God to dwell here. He tells us that his dwelling place is with his people through the power of his Holy Spirit. The purpose, the instruction that we have here, the purpose of our work here is to glorify God and enjoy him. It is to take care of this earth and, and work to provide for the things we're supposed to care for here. It's to see his kingdom come in the hearts and lives of his people. And he says that we do this as we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so it's to see that God is at the center of all we do. Now I can tell you that when I'm coaching a baseball game or a basketball game, God is not always at the center of everything I do. Sometimes it's that umpire or that referee that doesn't understand what they're doing, at least in my, from my vantage point. And I say that tongue-in-cheek a little bit because that's a safe example. But is God at the center of all we do? When you go into the workplace... And you were told that you have to reject what is being taught in the word of God as being false. And you have to instead embrace something that you know is counter to God's word. Is God at the center of all you do? Because let me explain how that would work. He gives life. He gives breath. 
Nothing they do to you in that workplace can take that life and breath from you. He gives you a dwelling place in his presence. Nothing they do to you in that workplace can change the fact that the Holy Spirit, that God, Jesus, through his spirit, is dwelling in you. Nothing they do to you in that workplace can take away the fact that God has said what is good. And y'all, we've said it before, but we've got to pray for one another. We've got to stand with one another. We've got to support one another because those challenges are going to come and we need to be reminding one another of the truth of God's word so that we can stand and we can face them in love because we're not scared, but in truth because it's God's truth. These things... Let me just jump to the end. This is why Paul tells us in Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood. In Ephesians 6.12 it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the battle is. And so we need to hold on to these truths of how he's created, but how he is recreating in his people. He gives you life. No one can take that from you. When we talk of someone moving from this death, you know, we pray for healing. Sometimes God heals on this earth and sometimes God heals in heaven. Always God heals in heaven. He gives life. He sustains life. He gives us a place with him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he tells us to walk with one another and to make that known. So as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want to ask you, where in your life, I want you to ask God, I don't really want to ask you, I want you to ask God this, where in your life, right now, is God not at the center of it? And I want you to pray that, ask him that. If he shows you, some, some of you, he may not show you that today, but if he shows you that, confess that before him as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let's pray silently. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at thevinecc. Have a great week.